0: Hello and welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentations in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conran and I'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact checkers from the Full Fact team. Now this week we've been inundated with questions about the creation of a central NHS digital database and what that means for your data. Now, to discuss what was described by The One Show as the great NHS data grab, I welcome the fact checkers, Grace Rahman and Leo Benedictus. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. But before that, let's talk about Matt Hancock, because talking to Andrew Marr on Sunday, the health secretary was challenged on his phrasing surrounding care homes, specifically his Protective ring phrase. Now, to our surprise, though, the health secretary gave this response: that "Phrase protective ring.
1: Do you at least regret that? Well, I it wasn't true. I, was it? I, I said that much later about what we were doing for the winter plan, and it's been interpreted.
0: But in a press conference on the fifteenth of May last year, he spoke about this protective ring in the past tense, not about the upcoming winter."
1: Right from the start, we've tried to throw a protective ring around our care homes.
0: He said similar and asked about it in Parliament three days later. Well,
1: we absolutely did uh, throw a protective ring around social care.
0: And then he said it again the next day.
1: We'll keep working to strengthen the protective ring that we've cast around all our care homes.
0: Leo Benedictus is with me. Leo, what's going on here?
2: Well, I mean, I think you've set it out pretty well. Um, he said that he... Hadn't used that phrase to talk about the first wave in, in spring 2020, but he clearly had. He very clearly had. He did it at least three times that we've we've been able to find, and I think it's an open and shut case on that point, really.
0: So, is this a case of rewriting history in a way?
2: I mean, well, as always, I, I can't see into Matt Hancock's mind. I can't, I can't see into yours either, Alexis. You know, we can't uh, always assume we know what other people are trying to do, but I think it is in this case. A bit of rewriting of history, yes, because we can see what the history was, which is that he said that the government had tried to throw a protective ring around care homes in in May last year. And now he said that he he never used the phrase in that context, but, but we can see he did. So, you know, I guess that's one of the reasons why it's useful to have these recordings and transcripts here and available so that we can check what people say.
0: Leo, this isn't the first time we've had this sort of looking back into history and perhaps jiggling around with the dates. Matt Hancock said the 16th of March is the day that I came to this house and said that all unnecessary social contacts should cease. That is precisely when the lockdown started. But that's not the date I remember lockdown starting on.
2: Yeah, this is actually one of our most popular fact checks from from last year. When we looked into this, it does seemed kind of odd to say that the lockdown started on the 16th of March. That's not the date that most people understand by it. Um, he he did say uh, the things he said he said, but whether that was the lockdown is is another matter, I think. you know It was only on the 23rd of March that Boris Johnson told people that they had to stay at home. And I think really that is the general understanding of lockdown has been used by most people in that way. So, Yeah, I think there was a bit of rewriting of history there as well.
0: Now, another thing concentrating on the health secretary, and this I think is a good story because uh, this concerns vaccinations in Bolton. Uh, Now, of course, there's a lot of focus in Bolton at the moment with the Delta variant, formerly known as the Indian variant. But again, in the House, uh, Matt Hancock stood up and said, The number of vaccinations happening in Bolton right now is phenomenal. Tens of thousands every single day. This got quite a few journalists and fact-checkers curious because I think the population of Bolton is around 300,000. You've looked into this. Have we found out whether Bolton was indeed carrying out 10,000 vaccinations every single day?
2: We've looked into it and it wasn't. No, I mean, it's one of those ones actually where it's it's so wrong that you think... it has to be a mistake. Again, I know I say we can't see into people's minds, but yeah, he said tens of thousands of vaccinations are being administered in Bolton every single day. And they weren't. The, the most that were ever administered in Bolton in a day was 5,465, so about halfway to ten to 10,000.
0: But, but the good thing about this is that this was brought to the health secretary's attentions and his department
2: and... Hooray! He corrected the record. Yes, I mean, I think with numbers, it's we, we absolutely all do it. We as fact-checkers do it. You know, we, we we correct each other's work to make sure it's accurate before we publish. So I think we understand better than many people that, that you can get numbers wrong. And in this case, he did, and he corrected it afterwards, which, again, shows how valuable it be, can be, I think, to, to point this stuff out to people and to get them to correct it after.
0: And what was his correction? He said he meant that it was uh, a week rather than a day, I believe.
2: Yes, that's right. That was, that was what he had in mind. Yeah. And we've seen um, many politicians and journalists as well make that kind of mistake during the pandemic.
0: Now, more recently, Leo, at the Science and Technology Select Committee on Thursday, Matt Hancock made claims about PPE procurement.
2: Getting hold
1: of PPE was always a huge challenge. And as the National Audit Office have shown in their report into this when they went through all of the details, there was never a point at which NHS providers couldn't get access to PPE.
0: He went on to say...
1: There was never a
2: national shortage of PPE because of the action that we took.
0: Leo, is that the case?
2: This gives a slightly misleading impression because it's not as if the NAO produced uh, a report which has completely exonerated the government over PPE supply in the way that Matt Hancock suggested the report actually contained lots of examples of shortages moments where medics didn't have the things that they needed those examples that they gave in that report of some hospital trusts getting only a third of the aprons they needed a quarter of the eye protection just 11% of the gowns and coveralls but when we spoke to the national audit office ourselves earlier in the year they told us that provider organisations we spoke to told us that while they were concerned about the low stocks of PPE they were always able to get what they needed in time so It's quite a complicated picture, and it it often amounts to what what you might consider to be a shortage. You know, is it a doctor or a nurse not having the equipment that they need at in the moment? If that happens once ever, does that constitute a national shortage? Or is it a matter of what's what's actually available in the warehouses where the stocks are being kept? You know, is there a shortage if, if those stocks get too low? Does it count as a shortage if there's just a problem with the logistics, with the vans getting things back and forwards? Maybe there are enough of something at any given time, but getting them to where they need it doesn't happen. I think it is a, it's a very complicated story, but I certainly don't think it would be right to say that there wasn't a problem with PPE, because I think there's a lot of evidence that's come from the national audit office and other places that there was a problem there were various problems
0: and in, indeed the the national audit office in in the article that that you have written up on the full fact website they say that feedback from care workers doctors nurses show that significant numbers of them considered that they were not adequately protected during the height of the first wave of the pandemic. Leo, could we say that Matt Hancock's claims that the National Audit Office found that there was never a national shortage of PPE? Can we say that that's not exactly what the National Audit Office said?
2: Uh, we can say that, yeah, because that's not a quote from them. You know, that that isn't something that that their report actually says. Really, the, the best thing I'd, I'd say to anyone listening is not to get bogged down in in the phrase national shortage and, and look at the detail of what actually happened. And there were clearly... Problems uh, with PPE supply during the peak of the first wave. Um, although, yeah, there, it wasn't a complete collapse in the system either by any means.
0: Okay, thank you, Leo. But don't go anywhere because we'll be back to talk to you shortly about foreign aid. But now let's turn to you, Grace. A lot of talk has been about our data being up for sale. Let's have a quick listen to a clip from Russell Brand that's had over 250,000 views. If you're in the UK, then your GP private medical records are about to be sold to the highest bidder. Is that what the database was put together for, for it to be sold to the highest bidder, as Russell Brand's telling us?
3: Um, Well, it depends how literally you take the phrase highest bidder. So the NHS Digital says it doesn't sell your data, and that is correct, in the sense that organisations won't pay to have the data itself. What they pay for, the NHS says the cost of processing and for the services NHS Digital provides. And there's a price list for organisations dependent on things like how much data they want, um, and that's a fixed price list. So it's not to the highest bidder as such, but it kind of depends on your definition of selling data. Tell us... What the purpose
0: of the centralised database was in the first place? I mean, it sounds like there was always a centralised database. What's changed? What's different about
3: this? one? Yeah, so there wasn't quite a centralised database previously. It's like a lot of cobbled together agreements between different trusts. So what this is doing is creating a true centralised database. And there are lots of reasons that NHS Digital wants access to something like that, to such a rich source of GP data for people and that is to do things like improve services, see what works, uh, to help with research and to do things like stop massive pandemics. What's
0: been the controversy about it? Is it purely the fact that this data would be made available to uh, not just research and academics purposes but to advertisers or to people who might want to use it for commercial purposes?
3: Well, there are a few concerns. One of the main ones is the fact that campaigners argue that the public haven't been given enough time to make what is a really personal decision about whether their GB data is shared. Another thing is concerns about whether this data is, it's not completely anonymized. So you, you can't be directly identified from it. But there are other ways that arguably people could work out who you were. And the other thing is who will end up buying access to this data. So NHS Digital say it won't be shared with marketing or insurance companies, but there's a lot of leeway around that that we don't quite know yet.
0: Now, we are being told that this data will not be anonymized, uh, but pseudonymized, if I can put it that word, If even if that is a word. It's got to be a word. I'm Greek. I recognize it. It's a word that we use. However, a lot of people are concerned that There will be ways, as you said, of being able to collect little bits of data and starting to identify people. Do we know anything more about that?
3: Yes. Uh, So the data that will be collected by NHS Digital won't include some really key identifying things such as people's names and where they live. So that won't even enter into the database. Um, There are lots of other things, obviously, that can identify you quite easily, such as, you know, date of birth, NHS number, postcodes. So NHS Digital will use this pseudonymisation software, which will depersonalise the data. So identifying things like date of birth, like NHS number... Will be changed into a code so people won't be directly identifiable from the data now nhs digital does have the keys so to speak to change those codes back into data that we would recognize but they say they will only do this under certain legal circumstances if you do nothing at this point this will happen to your data so it's an opt-out system and you might have heard the date of the 23rd of june being bandied about that is no longer the case and that date was because NHS Digital was going to start collecting the data on the 1st of July. So that collection date has now been postponed to the 1st of September. So if you do want to opt out, you have to return the opt out forms to your GP before then, and with a certain amount of time so they can process that opt out. Now we don't have an exact date, but the 23rd of June date was a week before the collection date. So you might imagine that you'd want to get that opt-out form in a week before the 1st of September, just to be safe.
0: Grace, we've been talking on on this podcast about communication issues and government communications. This may fall into one of those examples, isn't it? I mean, most people I know didn't have a clue about what was happening to their data. Is this yet another example of... Just bad comms.
3: Well, it's it's interesting because NHS Digital has been working on this for years and it got put back, obviously, because of the pandemic. But yeah, like you say, it's certainly led to a lot of confusion. It's already arguably kind of a complicated subject as it is. Uh, so you need to give the public time and all the information to make a really personal decision. But instead, we kind of saw it portrayed through headline writers and going viral on social media and that was you know inherently scarier than what could have been quite a good public information campaign so it just shows how important good information and clear information is for the public.
0: Thank you Grace. Now it's obviously a complicated issue and many are asking what should they do should they opt out they might not want their details to be shared by third companies accessing the digital database but they might want the details to be part of the database because um, they might want different healthcare professionals to have access to the correct information. So there are different types of opt-out. It's explained more fully in the fact check which you can find on org. Now let's bring back Leo to talk about foreign aid uh, which dominated the Prime Minister's questions this week. See how excited I am about foreign aid, Leo.
2: Yes. Well, it's an interesting subject. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Now, look, let's let's unpick it from words from the prime minister on the 9th of June at PMQs. The prime minister said under this government, uh, we've spent more and we continue to spend more uh, than Labour ever did. Now, we love these kind of statements because it gives us something to fact check. So you went off, had a look. What have you found?
2: I did. um, And I found that basically that's true. Basically, that's true. Um, I mean, there's the the big picture here. Often it's important to step back and and look at the big picture because these claims on specific facts sometimes maybe mask what what you really might want to look at. And the big picture shows us that the UK's aid spending has risen a lot this century, uh, essentially. And... I'm talking about the share of the national income that gets spent on aid. That's really the most important thing, not the actual number of pounds, because, of course, the value of pounds changes. And what really matters is how much of the available money the country is actually spending on aid. Now, since 1970, there's been an international agreement at the UN, which many, many countries subscribe to, that you should spend 0.7% of your national income on, on foreign aid. The rich countries should. Um, and the UK agrees with that, so do many other countries. In practice, not many of them actually do that each year. However, the UK has been ramping up its aid spending since roughly since the turn of the century, and by the time you get to 2013, it consistently does actually spend 0.7% of its national income on foreign aid. So that's a uh, by international standards, a reasonably high level of spending, and by historic UK standards, certainly a high level of spending. Both Labour and Conservative governments in the past didn't spend that much on aid. However, the reason this is in the news is because the government has announced plans to to reduce the level of its aid spending. It's not going to be 0.7 in the year, it's going to be 0.5 percent of the national income that they spend on aid and they say that's necessary in order to tighten belts really because of the the pandemic recession.
0: Leo do we do we know what that 0.2 percent what is that in terms of real money because I I appreciate that for people listening into this having to actually translate in their heads what 0.7 of GDP is and then what 0.2 reduction is? Can we give people some idea of what kind of money we're talking about here?
2: Sure. I mean, it is a lot of money. Um, it's it's a slightly difficult question to answer because, of course, it depends how much the national income ends up being in that year, which we don't always know. We don't yet know. Of course. But I mean, you can see, for example, that in 2020, 20 it's expected to be a bit over 14 billion pounds that we that we spend on foreign aid which is which is at the 0.7% but then next year it might well be only about 11 billion pounds or thereabouts so that that's a big big cut you know billions of pounds is going out of that budget is is the idea i mean even 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 over billions of pounds people can sometimes argue mm-hmm. about whether it counts as a lot of course because you know the, <laughs> there's, there's an awful lot of money things to spend that money on Um, And in relation to the the whole country's borrowing levels during the pandemic, you might even say it was quite small. But yeah, it's billions of pounds that we're talking about.
0: Leo, as always, thanks for giving us your time. Uh, Brilliantly explained. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial. And you can read more about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. We'll be back at the same time next Friday morning.